Well, this week we went to the polls, didn't we? I still see some of you with your, with your I voted stickers on. For midterm elections, now normally midterms are kind of like at the bottom of the fold. No one even is paying attention. But this was a particularly brutal and maybe even bruising cycle in this election. USA Today's November 6th edition called the midterms a clash of visions. I thought that was an appropriate title for what we were entering into. And so both sides of the aisles, the stakes were really high. In fact, interests in this election was abnormally high for a non-presidential year, particularly because our nation is so polarized and divided. Expectations and records were broken in this midterm with over 114 million people turning out for this midterm. So to put that in perspective for other midterms, in 2014, 83 million people turned out and, and in 2010, 91 million. So Millions more people turned out for this midterm. And when the results started coming in, we woke up to kind of an American stalemate, right? A divided Congress with Democrats in control of the U.S. House of Representatives and the Republicans maintaining control in the U.S. Senate. I remember President Barack Obama famously saying, elections have consequences, right? And while every election has consequences, from bills passed or not passed to judicial seats filled, rumors now of subpoenas and impeachment. Perhaps one of the unintended consequences of this election is just how charged and anxious people are. I mean, have you felt that as you've interacted with people, maybe on, on, on voting day, you just kind of could feel a tension. Jeffrey Engel, who is the director of the Center for Presidential History at SMU, down in Dallas, Texas, said this, fear is the dominant issue, bar none, in this election. See, elections in politics have this ability to bring out kind of the best and worst in people. They're, they're inherently about the future. We're, we're deciding what's it going to be like in the coming months and years. And because of that, we feel like so much is at stake with each election, and the political tensions kind of pulls us into these opposite and polarizing directions. And in our insecurity about the future, we inherently look for security and stability. So we might hope that this candidate or that candidate, that we would finally get the America that resembles the vision that we want for it. We want bills passed and laws passed that align with what we believe to be good and right. And with every passing cycle, our candidates win and when they lose, one thing remains. Is that our insecurity is never cured by elections. Right? When we woke up the next day, none of that had passed. The ballots had been cast. The votes were thrown in. Some of them are still going on in Florida. But none of the insecurity is gone. Elections aren't the only things that we look for security in an insecure world, is it? So what does it take for you to feel secure? Is it having the right people in power? Is it having a foolproof plan for the future? Maybe you find security in your possessions, right? If I just have enough money, then I'll be able to thrive. And none of these things are bad in and of themselves. We should care about elections. It's a good thing to make plans. But they all lack the weight to be a true anchor for your life. This morning, James is going to address 
three major areas where we try to find security for our insecurity. In this passage that Andy just read, James is going to show us how people, plans, and possessions not only reveal our insecurity, but fail to offer the kind of security that we need to thrive. In our text this morning, James is going to relentlessly point out how people, plans, and possessions come up short. And he's also going to do us the great favor of pointing us to our true security that supersedes any of our insecurity. So let's jump into verse 11 together. James says this, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? See, James knows that in our insecurity, sometimes we look to people for our security. So sometimes this can look like attaching ourselves to people and in, in, in kind of a codependency or in some type of a meshment. We go, we, we will hang our security on them. It's like relationship addiction, where we feel like we have to have them as our reference point for our identity and our security. They essentially become our anchor. But there's another way that we can use people to feel secure by slandering them or even verbally abusing them. See, in our insecurity, we seek to control people. And so the way this works is that we, we put people down And when they're pushed down, we feel what? Elevated. It gives us a sense of power and security as we control them. And so this is why James says, don't speak evil against one another. Now in this text specifically, James is talking about the sin of slander, defamation, and unfair criticism. Sometimes this can come from speaking lies. It could be half-truths. Sometimes even a defamatory word, it may be true, but maybe it's not our word to say, right? Maybe sometimes the best course is just to be quiet. It's talking down to someone as if you had some sort of superior dominant position. Alec Matir, a great commentator, says it this way. Defamation is forbidden, not as a breach of truth, nor even as a breach of love, but as a breach of of humility. If we are really low before God, we'll have no altitude left from which to talk down to anyone. Now to be clear, what he's talking about is not disagreeing with people. James doesn't forbid having hard conversations. In fact, he's having a hard conversation with us right now, right? He doesn't, he's not against lovingly confronting people that we love with the truth in order to speak good into someone's life. Now we're to do that with patience. We're to do that with understanding. We're to do that with gentleness and love. It matters how we do it. But James isn't against us having these kind of truth and love conversations. What James is talking about is criticism with the motive to tear down not to build up. See, when you go to someone confronting lovingly, your hope is to confront something so that you could build them up, not tear them down. Now, this is hard for us to hear sometimes because in our culture, increasingly, it tells us that disagreement 
equals rejection. So that if I disagree with you, I therefore reject you. But that's not the same thing. I can disagree with you about something and not be rejecting you, right? So if you don't believe that the Red Sox are the greatest baseball team, I disagree with you. But that doesn't mean I reject you as a person. See how that works? We can disagree about which baseball team is best, and it doesn't mean that I hate you. It doesn't mean that I don't like you. It doesn't mean that I reject you. It just means we have a difference of opinion about something. James is calling out the prideful, self-absorbed kind of talk that tears people down. Not the kind of dynamic speech where we try to encourage one another towards holiness so that we can grow in our relationship with God. Do you see the difference between those two things? Now, James reminds us of how we're to regard one another. Did you see it in the text? He said, inside the church, we are adopted brothers and sisters. That means we're all on the same level. There's no moral superiority, no class. None of us are the firstborn son or firstborn daughter. You know why? Because that position exclusively belongs to Jesus. He is the firstborn son. We are co-heirs with Christ. We have a guaranteed inheritance because our big brother Jesus is generous and he shares it with us. He also says we're to regard one another as neighbors. Did you see that? Where he said, who are you to judge your neighbor? So how, who is our neighbor? Jesus defined it for us. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus said that my neighbor and your neighbor is anyone who's in need. So if you look around you and you see someone in need, Jesus says, that is your neighbor. And because we all have need, what does that say about us? We are all each other's neighbor. And that means instead of seeking to tear people down, we're called to seek to build one another up. Instead of talking down to people, we meet them where they are. We lay aside self-interest to meet the needs of our neighbor, and in doing so, we give them the benefit of the doubt. We slow down on passing judgment to actually hear them. Hardly do we ever actually listen to what someone's saying, right? Most of the time, we're formulating what our response is going to be. But if you're actively thinking about your response, you cannot be actively listening. Let's meet people where they are. Let's slow down. Let's ask 10 questions before we ever make an accusation. See, where we need to lovingly confront sin, we need to do that. That's what brothers and sisters do. They help one another out. But we do it with honor and grace and patience. James says, when you speak judgment against your brother, you are judging the law and therefore judging the law giver. When you judge someone like that unfairly, you become the law, the jury, and the judge. James says unfair criticism, judgmental attitudes, and defamatory speech contradicts the law. Do you remember when we were in James chapter 2, how James defined the law? He called it this royal law which is basically pointing back to what Jesus said, to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you wanted to summarize it even further, the royal law is to love God and to love your neighbor. See, speaking evil and malice and tearing someone down is not loving your neighbor, is it? And so James starts to go deeper. He says that when we stand in judgment over the law and over people, we make ourselves 
like God. We, 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 we remove God from his position of authority and we assume this new position of authority. We essentially say to God, God, your law to love your neighbor is not right and good. I want to have another law. I want to judge my neighbor. I have a better law. And now I want to be the lawgiver and decide what's right. James is saying that is the ultimate presumption. When we traffic in harsh criticisms and malicious judgmentalism, it reveals a lack of self-awareness. We literally think we're God. Now nobody goes out and says it. No one says, hey, good to meet you. What's your name? John, my name's God. No one does that, right? No one, I've never heard any of you guys do that. But by our actions, and that's what James is getting at, by our actions, we kick God off his throne and we want to become the lawgiver. But let me just state the obvious. We aren't God. We didn't give the law, did we? He's the one who's able to do that. He's going to settle the final scores. He will decide matters of life and death. James said he's the one who's able to save and destroy. Now, do you remember the grace of God? God who could have judged all of us harshly. He had the right to. He could justly condemn us and destroy us. But what does he do? Because of his grace, he chooses time and time again to save and extend mercy and forgiveness to those who seek it, to both the critic and the criticized. So what does that say about how we're to interact with others? If God who judges justly, who is the actual rightful lawgiver, extends grace and mercy, doesn't that mean we're supposed to be people who extend grace and mercy as well? See, if we're all recipients of grace, then what high ground does any one of us have to talk down to or defame another brother, sister, or neighbor? James says when we do that, instead of being doers of the law, we become lawgivers and essentially usurp God himself. See, at first glance, this seems like just a passing quick word about not judging people, but it actually goes way deeper than that. Our denigrating, presumptuous, defamatory words against brothers and sisters is actually high treason against the creator, maker, and sustainer of the universe. That's why James says, who are you? Who do you think you are? What is your motive? Why do you find it hard to spend a minute in someone else's shoes before passing judgment? Why are we so quick to speak instead of being quick to listen. James wants us to slow down and ask if our judgments against people come from an insecure heart. Are you reacting out of insecurity against your brother and sister? See, when we try to control and condemn people, we are operating out of a place of weakness and insecurity, not relying on the strength and security of God remembering that he's the lawgiver. He's the perfect judge. So that frees us up from the frenzied life of comparison and competition. See, God becomes the stable ground that we need to stand on. Because see, God is holy. He's loving. He's just. And he is totally and completely in control. James' first point is that in our insecurity, we have a tendency with our speech and with our words to push people down. 
If the focus is on other people, see, that's how it works. If I can put all the spotlight on you, then the focus isn't on me. That's how insecurity works. It, it doesn't want the spotlight on me. And so maybe if I slander you or speak a word against you, everyone will look at you and therefore all the eyes will be off of me. And James says, you don't have to do that. Remember who you are. Remember who God is. Your security is actually wrapped up in the fact that you are his beloved son and daughter. So nobody could ever speak a better name over you. And that means that you don't have the weight and the responsibility to be lawgiver and judge. That frees you up to be a good brother and sister, a good neighbor to those around you. So James is saying, let your speech be filled with grace and mercy, just like God your father. Now next, James shows us in the next couple verses how our insecurity impacts our plans. James 4.13 says this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Everybody makes plans, don't you? Where are my type A people? Come on. Planners. You love plans. One of the greatest gifts you can give a type A person is a new planner. You're beaming over there. You love a new planner, right? But even type B, C, and D people make plans. Everybody makes plans. Extroverts, introverts, laid-back people, uptight people, optimists, pessimists, high control, spontaneous. Everybody makes plans. Everybody. Now, let me be really clear. The Bible is not anti-planning. In fact, it's pro-planning. Wisdom encourages careful and wise planning. Look what Proverbs 21.5 says. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. That's pro-planning, isn't it? So what's James talking about? He's not talking about just making plans. He's talking about making plans presumptuously. So what does that mean? That's making bold declarations and plans about the future and then feeling entitled to them to go our way. That's making a plan and being married to it and feeling frustrated and out of whack when it doesn't go your way. See, presumption is this prideful disposition of the heart that sees life itself as a right rather than a daily mercy. For we fail to understand the difference between a gift and a right. It's basically taking God out of the equation, planning according to our desires, while never consulting God's word for wisdom, praying to the Spirit for direction, and never doing it in dialogue in our Christian community. So James gives an example of one who says, matter-of-factly, tomorrow, let's go to this town, we'll spend a year, and we'll definitely turn a profit. Now, at first glance, that seems like a great plan, doesn't it? I'd like that plan. I'd like to make a profit. But James reveals the heart behind the plan. He tells us that this plan is made in arrogance, presuming that, A, tomorrow is guaranteed, and B, that nothing will get in the way of their plans. See, the heart behind these plans has boastfully removed God from the planning and forgotten that you and I are not in control. So James urges caution here. 
See, because we're not in control of time. As much as we like to think business deals are not in our hands, we don't control profit margins. Again, we're confronted with the insecurity and the weakness and the fragility of life. See, we'd like to think that with careful planning, we can pretty much determine when and where we go and what will happen. But James says it doesn't work like that. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. Life can change with a phone call or a text, can't it? An email can change the course of your whole day. A client can drop you like that. And in our insecurity about the changes and chances of life, we often rely on careful, strategic planning instead of relying on God. Now, everybody knows deep down that life is fragile, right? We're reminded of it every time we turn on the news or scroll through our news app. People's lives are taken, homes are destroyed, tragedy hits without notice, right? Like this week, those things happened. But insecurity by its very nature is unstable. And so we'll often settle for these kinds of pseudo-security in the absence of genuine security. So here's how it works. When you're off balance, what do you do? Like when when you're about to fall, the first thing, you reach out for something, anything to give you balance so you can catch yourself, right? We find something to stabilize ourselves. And in the fragility and the quickness of the moment, we don't think, right? It's instinctual. We're reacting. We grab for the first thing that we think will keep us up, don't we? I mean, everybody's done it. And that's how often we plan. In the insecurity of the moment, with the tyranny of the urgent, we find security in our planning to meet our needs and wants instead of slowing down, reaching out for God's hand, and to make plans in communion with him. We push the reality of our instability down into the basement, forget about it, and just live with this willful ignorance, making plans on our own to mitigate any shortfalls and suffering that may come our way. We assure ourselves that time is on our side, ability is at our disposal, and opportunity is there if we can find it. But when we do that, we're overlooking the fact that the calendar and time and circumstances are actually in God's hands, not ours. Time is not inevitable. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. We receive another day, not by natural necessity, not by mechanical law, or not by personal right. We receive tomorrow. You received today as a gift from God. See, the sun comes up because God tells it to each and every morning. You wake up because God through the night has been sustaining your heartbeat, giving you breath, and he grants us one more day. That's why every one of us woke up today. We are as dependent on tomorrow as we are for our very next breath and heartbeat. And to live in total self-confidence Removing God from the equation is to live a boastful life. Again, we don't declare it out loud, but silently and boastfully, that's what we're doing. That's why James says to say in our hearts, if the Lord wills. See, this is James' way of saying, hey, make plans. Do that. It's good. But do so in conversation with God. Don't hold so tightly to your plans when they don't go your way. See, when our hearts say, if the Lord wills, 
we're making a declarative statement that he's in control, not me. If my plans don't come to fruition, I'm still stable because though my plans have changed, guess what? God has not changed. If the Lord wills is an implicit trust that God is sovereignly and sufficiently in control. And in my most sane moments, I receive that truth as good news because it means I'm not in control and all the pressure all the weight that we feel when we have to be in control is gone. Family, our frames, your frame was not built to withstand that kind of weight. Have you ever hung something up on a wall? You know that you need the right kind of anchor depending on the weight of the object and whatever the material of the wall is made out of. If you did know it, here's a little hardware lesson, okay? When you go to the hardware store, you're going to see a little number on that package. It's going to tell you how much weight that anchor can hold depending on what substance it's anchored into. You following with me? So let's say it's sheetrock. You buy a sheetrock anchor and you make sure that the weight of the object you want to hang is specced out for that particular anchor. Now it would be wrong and faulty and foolish to presume upon a fastener to hold more weight then it's been designed to hold. You can't hang a 50-pound object on a 10-pound anchor, right? I mean, you could, but it's going to fall down. That's like us. We have not been designed to hold the weight of sovereignty and ultimate control. If you try to hold it, you will crash. We're just simply not built for it. How did James say we're built? We're like a mist. Here today, gone tomorrow. You cannot hang sovereignty on a mist. Can't do it. But guess what? God is in control and he's doing a great job. He is holding it all together. So how do we apply this to our lives? First thing, I think we need to repent of our willful ignorance. We plan, we live as if we're in control. We know it's not true, but the way that we go about our lives contradicts that belief. We need to change the way we think about the future, we need to change the way we speak about our plans and line them up with God. Now, that doesn't mean you need to make if the Lord wills as some kind of incantation or mantra. Hear me. I do not want if the Lord wills in front of every single word you say, all right? That's going to get annoying real fast. Let's not do that. But that is a posture of the heart. What would happen if we prayed and asked for God's direction before we planned? Instead of making plans and then praying about them, asking God to baptize them in his name. Because that's often how we do it. We settle our hearts. We say, this is going to be the plan. We say, God, make this thing come true. Like he's some genie in the bottle. Second, we need to become a patient people. I don't know if you're like me. I lack patience. I am not a patient person. I see some smirks and some looks and some nods. Okay, it feels good. I'm not the only one. We are a rushed and hurried people, aren't we? We don't value careful, slow, prayerful planning. But James is saying that's the only way to do it. Our lack of patience and listening to God means we react out of our insecurity instead of relying on the security we have in God. And third, I think it means we need to understand the difference between a right and a gift. See, rights are things you're entitled to. You should get them. You don't have to earn them. They're yours. Gifts are something that we receive with gratitude. We're not guaranteed it. 
family. Our next breath is not a right. It's a gift. It's a gift from God. Our plans are not guaranteed to work out like we hope. When they do, rejoice. Be grateful. When they don't, we still rejoice. And we still have gratitude because God is at work even when we can't see what's going on. He's in control. Instead of relying on our careful planning, our only hope for security is in the God whose plans always come to fruition. God doesn't have a plan B. He doesn't need it. His plan A always works out. So that frees us up, family. We don't have to live as frenzied people, insecure, because God is in control. He is the firm foundation that we can stand on. So James has shown us how in our insecurity we, re- we push people down. And he's also shown us how we rely on our planning. Now James is going to show us how we often look to our possessions for security. He says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. This paragraph is a strong rebuke against those who misuse wealth through selfish hoarding. And he uses really vivid language to capture our attention. He says, riches have rotted and your garments are eaten by moths. Silver and gold, which are precious metals that don't rust, he's saying they're corroding and losing value. See, possessions can easily become a primary way we try to find security in our insecurity. Everyone, both Christians and non-Christians, it doesn't matter your background or your worldview, everybody can be captivated by wealth and all of its promises of security and comfort. See, we use money to buy what we lack and it's so tempting to indulge in its pleasures and rest in its security. So how do we distinguish between wise saving and selfish hoarding? Because again, the Bible's not anti-planning and saving. It's actually pro those things. It says it's, it's wise to save. But there's a difference between making sure you have enough for hard times and having so much that you never put it to use for the kingdom. Having so much that it essentially becomes an estate sale one day for us to pick through. Hoarding stores up enough security so that I'll never have to feel dependent or insecure. Hoarding takes God's gifts that we're supposed to use for his will, and it turns them into objects of our will and our security. Hoarding amasses wealth for our personal estate instead of living intentionally and purposefully for the kingdom of God. See, the faulty assumption is that our valuables have enduring value to secure any of our determined futures. Anybody remember the Great Recession of 2008? Remember that? I graduated seminary during that time. No jobs. Hard to find work. It was the most severe economic downturn since the Great Depression of the 1930s. The real estate market collapsed. Banks were bailed out by the government. Employment rate peaked at 10% and household net worths tanked. People's 401k, they were watching it plummet down day by day. It reminded America that our gold and silver can rust. Our insecurities, our, our securities aren't that secure. Circumstance can alter the value of our valuables. 
Look what he goes on to say in verse four. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and you fattened your heart as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now James turns up the heat as he deals with dishonest fraud. I mean, this is a hard passage. If the previous uh, verses were about the misuse of wealth, this is about the abuse of wealth. Here we have landowners who deny their employees their wages. And when that happens, the families of those employees suffer while the landowner maliciously cuts overhead to increase his profit. He compares the way this landowner treats his employees to murder. What he's basically saying is that when a person's heart becomes so owned and corrupted by murder that at some point there's nothing he would not do in order to get another dollar, even kill and murder. James says that the Lord sees this kind of injustice and he hears the cries of the oppressed. James is calling out those who would do whatever it takes to live a life of indulgence, and he's calling them out. He's, he's putting them on notice. This is a life that's void of self-denial. The life of indulgence never says no. And there's this lust for more, always to have it, and you're willing to do whatever it takes to get it. This is the person who doesn't have a wish list on Amazon. No waiting. You just click, buy, and it's shipped to you in two days. No self-denial, just comfort and enjoyment. Never saying, let's save up for it. Let's wait. James says, this, is like the, the, this person is like the cow blissfully eating on the day of harvest, right? Fattening himself up, not knowing that the slaughter is coming. The butcher is sharpening the knife. It's graphic and vivid. But James doesn't want us to be like the unthinking, unaware beast in the field growing fat as the hour of judgment draws near. Now hear me, it is not a sin to be rich. The question when it comes to wealth is this, how did you acquire it? Was it through uh, abusive means? What are you going to do with it? What is your motive with it? And how much does it own you? Because very quickly, we often think, I own my things, but the reality is our things often own us. Do you look to your money and your possessions for your security? Or do you look to God for your security and ask, how can I take what you've given me and put it towards your ends? See, money, unlike many things, has this way of dulling our sensitivity to God. That's why so much in the Bible talks about giving it away so that we remain alert, so that it doesn't have an ownership on us. See, when we feel secure with wealth, it can be very difficult to feel your dependency and need for God. Our natural insecurity can be masked by wealth instead of finding our security in Christ. So James is a good brother to us this morning. He doesn't want us to miss it. He uses strong language of judgment that causes us to look forward to this final judgment, this day where that's going to be characterized by weeping and howling for those who have abused others with their wealth. Now, I know it is wildly unpopular in the state of Massachusetts to talk about Judgment Day. And I'm not talking about that awesome movie in the 90s with Arnold Schwarzenegger. 
It's like the best sequel of all time. I'm not talking about that judgment day. I'm talking about the day that is coming for us all when we will come face to face with our maker and give an account for how we've lived. James says those who reject God and his security to find it on our own, those who oppress people by their wealth will have to answer to God for their lack of trust in him and for the oppression of his people. It is a hard truth, but it's a true truth nonetheless. My job as a preacher is not to tickle your ears, tell you have truths, to mislead you. I will stand accountable before God for how I preach this text. My job is to tell you the truth from scriptures no matter how hard it is. Friends, there is coming a day when money will not bail you out. There is coming a day when securities will have no value. There's coming a day when the fraud and dishonesty of our lives will catch up to us. It would be unloving if I didn't tell you so. So James is saying between now and then, it's better to mourn and grieve your sin today than face the coming judgment when grace is extinguished and all that's left is weeping and howling. Friends, come to Jesus while there is still time. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. James says we are but a vapor here today, gone tomorrow. But today, abundant grace is on the table. Forgiveness is available to everyone who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ. Everything you might rely on will pass away. It is fleeting. It's a vapor. But what will remain is the fact that God will rightly judge us for how we've spent our money and how we've treated our other people. Either our money will own us and our destiny will be wrapped up in it like the silver and gold that's corroded, or God will own us and our destiny will be wrapped up with him. See, God's ownership of your life will be proved beyond a shadow of a doubt by the way that we live our lives. Do you remember earlier in the text when James said that whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin? Do you remember that? I saved it for the end. This is the sin of omission. And it's the standard that, we, that, that says that we are all guilty. Even if you've done a great job of doing good things, all of us have failed to do the right thing every single time. To live as if your life was your own as if you control your destiny, as if you really were independent, is to neglect the blatant reality that you are but a vapor. And to live like that, James says, is sin. Do you remember what James said earlier, what sin leads to? In James 1, he said, sin leads to death. To live as if it doesn't matter how we treat other people, to live as if we can just plan according to our own will, that our money is ours and ours alone to spend on whatever we want, James says, is to live a life without God. It puts all your stock and security in yourself. James says when we live with that kind of self-confident, arrogant boastfulness, it's sin and it leads to death. But family, hear me, there is hope. There's hope while today is still called today. We can realize our insecurity and see that God has not only graciously given us life, but he has secured for us in Christ all the security we could ever need. Did you know that Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends who never understood this truth? 
as the circumstances started to turn, as he saw that Jesus wasn't who he thought he was going to be, when he saw that Jesus was going to be put to death and that he himself might also be put to death, he found security in saving his own life and collecting a meager fee. For Judas, he wanted to put his security in his own planning and in his own destiny. Jesus is the righteous man who is condemned and murdered, who did not resist. And because Jesus was willing to go quietly and die on the cross, he secured for you and for me all the security we will ever need. Jesus made himself insecure and vulnerable so that you and me could be secured and accepted. He paid the price for our security, and that grace is the only thing that makes sense of all of this. In our insecurity, we can put our trust and security in Christ. That's the only way we'll ever live where we don't feel like we have to put others down to feel lifted up. It's the only way that we can live patient and prayerful lives instead of planning with the frenzy of our own confidence. It's the only way that we can put our money to kingdom uses instead of feeling like all of our stock is dependent on this life. That's the gospel, that's true security, and it's available for you and me.